Please be seated. You can take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as we look at the first seven verses of Romans 1 this morning together, Paul's introduction to the church at Rome, speaking of his life dedicated to the gospel and what the gospel is. So we'll look at those verses this morning. Actually, Paul gives two things in this passage, I believe. Uh, Number one, he gives a description of himself, and that is in verse one, with a series of phrases. And then secondly, throughout verse two, to the end of the passage, he gives an explanation of the gospel. A description of himself and an explanation of the gospel. That's a simple outline for this morning. And hopefully we can look and learn some wonderful things and be reminded of other things that we already know and so that all of us might grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Join me in prayer. Let's ask God's blessing upon our time of study in his word. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. And we pray that you would oversee the teaching and preaching of your word, that you would anoint it, and that you would stitch it to the fabric of our hearts, every one of us, so that you might have your good, pleasing, and perfect will done in all of us. We humbly pray and ask your blessing upon our time of study together now, and we make our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Well, notice, first of all, with me, Paul's description of himself. And once again, we look to verse 1 for this. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I suppose if I could say a summary statement of all that Paul is saying in this single verse, it would be this. I want to know Christ and make him known to all others. I want to know Christ... And I want to make him known to all others. And I believe that involves uh, three things that Paul unfolds for us here. First of all, his communion with Christ, his calling in life, secondly, and thirdly, his commission for the sake of the gospel. First of all, his communion with Christ. You'll notice he says a bondservant. And the word in the Greek New Testament is really doulos. It means slave. Paul looked at himself and he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. This is one of the great principles of the Christian life, namely that you're never truly free until you're a slave of Jesus Christ. Indeed, a slave has no rights and does exactly what his or her master says to do. And the Bible is very clear that every human being is born with original sin, and therefore we come into the world as slaves of the devil. Slaves of the devil. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And Paul later would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 26, 
as he gives them instruction on how to minister to people in the body of Christ, he says that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, you're going to be a slave to somebody. It's our very nature as individuals made in the image of God to cling to God, as I mentioned a few weeks ago from Jeremiah, to be dependent upon God. We are dependent beings. We are social beings. And if we are not dependent upon the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will be dependent upon and slaves to something or someone else. But Paul saw himself as a slave to Christ. You know, and the really beautiful thing about this is that Paul willingly and voluntarily applied this designation of slave to himself. You remember in John chapter 15, we studied many weeks ago, Jesus himself said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. And we made the point that Jesus brings us in closer and closer to intimate communion with him. Well, here is Paul saying, I still want to be a slave to Christ. I want to be enslaved to Jesus. I want to be close to him. I want to be intimate with him because there is where I find strength and power. There is where I find my true sense of identity. That is where I discover who God made me to be, what God made me to be, and where he wants me to be. The Apostle Paul, many scholars say, was a, a bow-legged, uncomely man. He didn't look good. He didn't make a good impression in the flesh. But when he came to know Jesus Christ, even as an angry man, as an ugly man, he found his place. God said, you're going to be mine, and you're going to be an instrument of mine to touch the hearts of many. You see, Paul had a great communion with Christ. He saw him as his master. And ladies and gentlemen, Paul's communion with Jesus Christ should be our communion. We are called to serve Christ. And you see, our slavery to Jesus is a willing and a voluntary thing because the closer you get with him, the more you submit your life to him, the more you find who you really are and all that God intended you to be. His communion with Christ was rich. He spent his life saying, I want to know him. I want to know him better. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You take the risk to become intimate with Jesus Christ. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Paul's communion with Christ should be our communion. Well, notice not only his communion, but also his calling. He says, Paul is slave, a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle. Paul was called as an apostle. This is his vocation in life. You know, the term call is a very fluid term in the New Testament. God's calling unto salvation is one sense in which we use it, but also the calling on your life subsequent to conversion is another way that we use that. The Lord called Paul unto salvation on the road to Damascus. And then he called him to be an apostle. And so Paul's calling comes in a variety of ways. But the Lord set him apart to be an apostle. Now, folks, 
the point here is that Paul's calling is our call as Christians. Christ calls us unto salvation, and then he calls us to serve in numerous ways. And not everybody is an ordained minister or a church officer. That's not what I mean. You see, in verse 6 and 7, if you notice down the list here, Paul says, you also are the called of Jesus Christ, called as saints. Every one of us as a Christian has a calling in life. That is, when Christ brings us into his kingdom, he has a plan for our lives. He has a place for us to serve in his church and also in the world. And so the Lord may call some as a godly attorney or a plumber or a carpenter or something else. There are many, many ways to serve. And we live out our vocation. And so every one of us has a calling in life if we've responded to the call of Jesus Christ in salvation. We need to live out that call. And then notice, thirdly, his commission for the gospel. We have his communion with Christ. He sees himself as a slave, intimate with the Lord Jesus. His calling in life for Paul as an apostle. And then his commission. He says in that last phrase in verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. Calling relates to one's vocation. Commission relates to one's charge or direction. It is the specifics of what one is to do. Paul was called as an apostle. And what do apostles do? They serve as commissioned agents, representatives of the Lord. And they are tasked with taking the gospel everywhere to make the living Christ known to others by sharing the good news of the glorious gospel of God. That's why it says you're set apart. Paul, for that, means he was ordained to office as an apostle. But you know what the Bible teaches? That apostles and pastors and teachers of the Bible are to work themselves out of a job. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things which you have heard, he's telling Timothy, from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There is a multiplication that's supposed to be taking place. And that means that Paul's commission should be our commission. Every one of us is set aside, set apart as a Christian for the gospel. And again, that doesn't mean professional ministry. It means that everywhere you go, you, at the forefront of your heart and mind, must have the gospel and make the Lord Jesus known. To others, if he truly lives inside of your heart. So we come full circle here. Paul, for Paul, his life was characterized by knowing Christ and making him known to others. That's how he describes himself, and we ought to describe ourselves the same way. Knowing Christ and making him known to others by the grace of God. That is, speaking about him, discussing our intimate relationship with him, so that others might come into the kingdom. So that others might see not another religion, but a relationship, a living relationship with our master, the Lord Jesus. Well, that was Paul's description of himself. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, his explanation of the gospel. And we see this unfold in verses 2 all the way to the end of the passage. Beginning in verse 2 and continuing through the remainder of this passage, Paul offers an explanation or an analysis of the gospel of God. And he speaks of three uh, large categories, if you will. 
First, the foundation of the gospel, and that's in verse 2. And then the focus of the gospel, which we see in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, the fruit of the gospel in verses 5 and beyond. So first of all, the foundation of the gospel. Look at verse 2 with me. Paul mentions the gospel, he said, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, God revealed the gospel to the apostles, but it did not come as something complete or a new novelty because he had already promised it through the prophets. That is the Old Testament Scriptures. There is, in fact, an essential continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus was clear during his life on earth that the Scripture bore witness of him, that he was indeed the Son of Man in Daniel 7, that he was indeed the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and that it had been written. He had to suffer in order to enter into his glory. We come to the New Testament. We look at the book of Acts, and Peter quotes the Old Testament in reference to Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation, and the gift of of the Holy Spirit. We also see Paul reasoning with people out of the scriptures that the Christ must suffer and rise and that he was Jesus. Paul also insisted in 1 Corinthians 15 that it was according to the scriptures that Christ both died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And so both the law and the prophets bore witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we apply that? Well, we have reason then to be thankful that the gospel of God has a double attestation. Namely, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. And both bear witness to Jesus Christ, and this is what Paul comes to next. He's going to talk about the focus of the gospel. But always remember that, ladies and gentlemen. What you believe about Jesus is attested to by numerous individuals over hundreds of years in this marvelous, sacred record of God's holy word. Whenever God speaks, we ought to listen and give our attention to what he has to say. That is the foundation of the gospel. But notice the focus of the gospel. And you see this in verses 3 and 4. It is, of course, the gospel of God but it is a gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God's good news is about Jesus. Martin Luther said, quote, Here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of John Calvin. The whole gospel is contained in Christ. and Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Now look at the word here, verse 3. Jesus has two titles. Paul says, concerning his son, that is God's son, who was born a descendant of David, according to the flesh. That speaks of his humanity. Jesus Christ came in the line of David as he was prophesied to do in the Old Testament scriptures. He would be a blessing all the way back to Abraham, speaking of the future, God talking to him. One would come one day from his body, subsequently from David's body, King David, and that heir would be the Lord Jesus himself. And so he was born a descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne, according to humanity. But also, he says he was declared the Son of God 
with power by the resurrection of the dead. The Son of God speaks of his deity. Descendant of David and the Son of God. That's who Jesus Christ was, the God-man. Full humanity and full deity in one person. Now the translation of declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead is challenging and difficult. There's a Greek word there, horizo, does not really or usually mean declare. And it is properly rendered appoint, as when God appointed Jesus as the judge of the world. Yet the New Testament does not teach that Jesus was appointed, established, or installed as the Son of God at or by the resurrection. Why? Because he is the eternal Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. He did not come into a new status. And so this leads us to the conclusion that the words in power should be attached to the noun Son of God rather than the verb appoint. And in this case, Paul is affirming that Jesus was appointed Son of God in power or even declared to be the powerful Son of God. It's really a contrast between his earthly life and the results of his heavenly ministry. One commentator puts it this way. Before the resurrection, Jesus was the Son of God in weakness and lowliness. Through the resurrection, he becomes the Son of God in power. That is, he is the authoritative Savior. Why did he come in weakness? Because we are dirty sinners. We needed a Savior. And when the Lord opens your eyes and you begin to see the badness of your heart, the disease of the heart, then the Son of God becomes a beautiful thing. You realize that He took upon Himself human flesh in order to pay the penalty for my sins and also to secure righteousness for me that He clothes me with. Jesus did all of that. And that's why He said on the cross, It is finished. It is finished. I have come and I have assumed a human body. I have lived for 33 years with perfect and personal obedience. And now I lay down my life in order to spill my blood to cover the sins of my elect children. And I will rise from the grave to demonstrate the complete, total victory of the eternal Son of God over death and sin and hell. And I will ascend back to heaven in order to mediate my presence to my people through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus did. And that's why Paul will say later in this very chapter, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is power to those who believe. It is power. The gospel is not more good advice. It's not on the catalog of self-help books in the local library. No, the gospel is a person. The gospel is a living, breathing person. And he lives inside of his children. And he transforms us. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. You know what that means? That means that when Jesus Christ enters your life, the Lord is taking you back to the time of Adam and Eve, before the fall into sin, to the person you were made to be, 
None of us are who we were made to be because of the mar of sin. Sin covers up the image of God. Sin messes things up in our hearts and lives. But whenever we invite the liberating Lord Jesus Christ inside of us, He sets us free. In order to be His slaves, we realize that's what we were meant to be. Children, sons, and daughters of God. That is our true identity. So many young people these days going through life not knowing who they are, not having any kind of compass about where to go, listening to everyone and everything except God's Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible says that Christ is alive. He rose from the grave. All of human history, He is the centerpiece, the centerpiece of everything. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul wraps it up with a respectful uh, saying about the Spirit. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. God demands holiness. And God sent His Son in order to make us holy. We who were dirty sinners. And we do that whenever we obey the gospel, whenever we exercise faith in Christ. And so you see, the beauty of the Trinity is in this uh, two verses. Concerning His Son, that is the Father's Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's Jesus, of course, according to the Spirit of holiness. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all testify to the beauty and the power of the Son of God. In summary, Jesus Christ came in weakness as the suffering servant, but subsequent to his death, his life and death and resurrection, he becomes the Son of God in power for all those who believe in him. Let me ask you something this morning. What is the source of power in your life? What drives you? What motivates you? Is it something temporal? Or is it the eternal Son of God and his love for you to lay down his life for you? to make you a son or a daughter of Almighty God. Well, that is the focus of the gospel, simply Jesus and a relationship to him. And thirdly, the fruit of the gospel. Look at verse 5. He gives another one of those packed statements that involve basically three things. Now, there are many fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Whenever Christ comes into your life and the Holy Spirit mediates his presence, you turn into a different person. But there are some bigger, major categories under which all the other fruit of the Spirit falls. And I believe Paul gives three overarching categories of the fruit or the outcome of the gospel here in this passage. Number one, obedience to Christ. Look at verse 5a. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. What a marvelous statement. The obedience of faith. Faith. The NIV renders it better, I think. The obedience that comes from faith, or is the outcome of faith, which immediately reminds us of what Abraham said, or what he did, or what is said about Abraham in Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. You know, the life of faith is not an arrogant thing. Often we don't know where we're going. All we're trying to do is be obedient. 
And that's what it means to enter the gospel, to obey, to exercise faith, the obedience that comes from faith. It's saying, Lord Jesus, I believe you're real, and I want you to come into my life by faith, and I want to see the evidence of a changed heart. I want to find out who I was really meant to be according to your divine decree, not who I think I should be. The proper response to the gospel of faith, indeed faith alone, is to believe. And in so doing, you obey the gospel. A true and living faith in Christ both includes submission, especially because of its object. Jesus Christ as Lord, according to verse 4, or in verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. It leads inevitably to a lifetime of obedience. This is why the response Paul looked for was a total, unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ, which he called the obedience of faith. See, it's all or nothing with Jesus. You can't go halfway. It's all or nothing. And it's scary to exercise faith. It's scary to let go of your way and your will. It's scary to turn your life over to the control of another. But whenever the other is the living God, through His Son, the Lord Jesus, you have every reason in the world to submit your will and your way to His love and reception of you. According to verse 6, the Roman Christians had believed and obeyed. For Paul describes them as being among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What is the fruit of the gospel? Simply put, the obedience of faith. Not faith in the law, not obedience to the law, but obedience to the gospel. That is, acknowledging I could never save myself by trying to be good. I could never save myself by trying to be somebody different. No, the Lord comes to us as we are. That's why the Bible says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus doesn't come to us when we clean ourselves up. He comes to us in our need, in our loneliness, emptiness, and he saves us in that venue. We cannot claim Christ as Savior without surrendering to him as our Lord. And that's what the Roman Christians were doing. And that, by and large, ladies and gentlemen, is a large sign of the fruit of the gospel. Whenever people obey because they exercise faith in him, they trust him. And obedience presupposes a relationship, ladies and gentlemen. It's easy to read a bunch of stuff and believe a bunch of doctrines. That's what other world religions do. But if you obey, that means you believe it from head to toe. You believe that Christ is alive, that you give an account to him. The obedience that comes from faith. A second fruit, and that is concern for the lost. Look at verse 5b. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles among all the Gentiles. All the Gentiles. Paul is affirming that the gospel is for everybody. Its scope is universal. Paul was a patriotic Jew who maintained a strong love for his people and longed passionately for their salvation. At the same time, he had been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
And in obedience to Christ, Paul crossed racial, cultural, national barriers out of love for the Gentiles whom the Lord Jesus was calling to himself. See, Paul's concern for the lost is a definite sign of the fruit of the gospel. When God changes your heart and shows you that you're acceptable in his sight because of what the Lord Jesus did for you, then you begin to have compassion on other people around you. Regardless of who they are, where they come from, what they look like, what color they might be, what culture, what nationality. For the Apostle Paul, as a conscientious Jew, to change so much that he would become the Gentiles' apostle. That is a huge change. And obedience to the great commission of our Lord demands that we be liberated from all pride of race and nation and tribe and class and acknowledge that God's gospel is for everybody without exception and without distinction. No one is beyond the scope of God's grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. This is a major theme in the book of Romans. The gospel of Jesus Christ is bearing fruit whenever Christ's church, whenever Christ's people are concerned for the salvation of the nations. That's one of the reasons we had a wonderful international dinner last night, so that we expand our understanding of what Christ is doing in the world and how he's bringing people from all nations to himself. For Paul, who used to put to death Christians as a conscientious Jew, for him to be the apostle of the Gentiles is amazing. And it shows God's change in his life. How is the Lord changing your heart? Are you receptive? Are you loving to those you don't like? Are you loving and gracious to those who are different than you? Are you willing to put the gospel out for the sake of all people that they might come to know the Lord? One final thing. We see the ultimate signs of God's grace and fruit in the gospel through obedience to Christ whenever we obey the gospel, through concern for the lost, but also through honoring Christ's name. Why do we evangelize? Why do we care about people that they come to know Jesus Christ? Well, we do it out of obedience for sure. But you notice what Paul says at the end of verse 5, for his name's The words for his name's sake appear at the end of the sentence in the Greek New Testament, as they do here in the NASB. And so it forms somewhat of a climax. Why did Paul desire to bring the nations to obedience of faith? It was for the sake of the glory of the honor of Christ's name. For God had exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place and had given him the name that is above every other name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The earliest Christians, John tells us in his third epistle, verse 7, they went out for the sake of the name. Listen to the words of John Stott. If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name. We should be troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and the glory which are due it. The supreme motivation behind authentic Christian missions, getting the gospel out in word and deed, is a burning and passionate desire 
a zeal that the name of Christ would be honored. You know, when you love somebody, you honor them. You honor their name. I remember living back in Deland, and Diane came home one day in tears. And some guy had uh, pulled in front of her, or, or she pulled in front of him, and he got mad and got out of his uh, vehicle and called her all kinds of awful names. Later on, we went to a restaurant that night. I tried to offer her some comfort and looked above her head uh, in the line, and there was the guy standing there who had said these awful things. And I went up and I confronted him. I didn't get in a fight or anything like that. But I told him what I thought. I said, you don't talk to my wife that way. I don't care what happened. You don't talk to her that way. She is my wife. When you're close to somebody, their name is important. You stand to honor their name. How much more beyond our spouses, our children, how much more the name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ, is he honored in your life? You see, that's fruit of the obedience that comes from faith because it shows that you have an intimate relationship with this Christ who has changed and who is changing. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Paul's letter to the Romans. We praise you, Lord, that the same power that is available then to change people like Paul into the man you created him to be, that same power is available now to stop us and arrest us wherever we are in life and to bring us close to you that we might discover who we truly are and who you want us to be. Lord, I pray that if there's one or more here that have never known you, they've never trusted your loving, gracious touch in their lives, that, Lord, you would soften their hearts and that you, by your Spirit, would invade their hearts and give them the warm, loving reception you give to all your children as you release us from the power of Satan and sin. And Father, for the rest of us, help us to have this zeal. If we truly believe that your Son lives in our hearts, may we demonstrate it by our own obedience and by our concern for those who are lost, that we might pray with them and share with them. And yes, Lord, that we would honor your name, that we would not use it or take it in vain, but demonstrate our respect for all and who that name, Jesus, represents. Lord, do all these things and more. And we will give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for the outcome. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.